Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Level Up Human, the comedy science podcast, souping up the homo sapien. Hello and welcome to Level Up Human, the podcast panel show where we are trying to redesign the human being one body part at a time. Uh, we are doing this in the middle of lockdown, so we are now going over the wire and we are joined, as always, by our producer and comedian, Rachel. How are you doing, Rachel? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. The chickens are laying, so we're now in eggs. Well, I keep thinking when you said you've acquired chickens for lockdown, are you going to be acquiring foxes? Because surely that's the natural London way. I am attracting all of London's urban fox population to my back garden, but um, I have a Nerf gun, so it's fine. <laughs> Nerf gun. If only you could persuade certain toffs to adopt that as a whole different means. The political landscape of Britain would be radically changed, is all I can say. So look, I'm your host, Simon Watt, but you don't want to hear from us too. We have got some illustrious guests. The job of this podcast is to try and redevelop our evolution. We need to kind of upskill, as it were. Rachel's going to be asking as a judge. We've got our experts here who are going to pitch the ideas. And first of up, all the way from Germany, we have Kate Storrs. Hello, Kate. Hello. Thank you. Nice to be here. I, we first met when you were back at Cambridge. What's taken you off to Germany to do more research? Can you tell us a bit about what you do? Yep. I'm a scientist, postdoctoral scientist, studying uh, human vision, uh, both visual neuroscience and um, the sort of perceptual experience of vision. In Cambridge, I was sticking people in fMRI scanners and studying object recognition. And then I came over here to Germany to try to teach deep neural network models to understand things about surface materials and glossiness and shape and all of these kind of fundamental visual properties that uh, we're sensitive to. Okay, there was a lot of words there. I understand maybe <laughs> maybe two of them. What's a deep neural network? So deep neural networks are what Facebook and Google and all of the internet image searches you interact with use to do computer vision nowadays. They're modern computer vision models that are suddenly in the last few years, very, very good at recognising faces and objects. So if it was doing the same kind of thing on Instagram, do they call it a shallow neural network? <laughs> that is a thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love that. And we're also joined by naturalist and broadcaster, Steve Backshall. Are you there, Steve? 
Yes, I'm Steve Batchel and I make programmes about animals for children. Uh, well, it's more than that. You are now an expert because I was dead chuffed to hear, was it this week you've now completed your master's or is it now submitted? How does it work? No, no, it's, it's completed. It's completed. I've had all my corrections accepted. Uh, and it, yes, I, I hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to graduate in September if, if we're allowed out of the house. Yeah, I was trying to imagine what like an online graduation ceremony would be. Surely just pre-recorded would be the answer. You could get all the, I don't know, Oprah Winfrey could do you as well. It would be so depressing. It's so depressing. I, I Actually, I just did an, an awards ceremony last week that we all did online. And it just, uh, it was really disappointing. I, I can't imagine anything worse than having worked this long on my master's thesis and then having to sit in my bedroom and, uh, and accept a virtual scroll. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It's a little bit too Dungeons and Dragons for my liking. (laughs) Virtual scrolls. So these are our experts. They're going to be pitching ideas for improving the human. But before we get there and we get into this sort of speculative far-flung science, all of our panel brought along a news story to show us what is happening in science right now. Can we kick off with you, Kit? What news story has grabbed you lately? Sure. So the thing that I've been most tickled and baffled by in science-related news in the last week or two is that Microsoft has filed a patent to generate cryptocurrency by monitoring people's brain activities and other bodily activities. They say that you can plug a person into a sensor, like put them in an fMRI scanner or attach sensors to their body, and then you get them to do a task like watching an advert. And then if the sensor detects that their body activity is in the appropriate levels for the task that they're doing, it will award them a small amount of some new cryptocurrency. Why did you choose an advert for that? Like, is this a way of trying to brainwash us into being susceptible? Well, this is the first use case they mention in their patent. They say a brainwave or body heat emitted from the user when the user performs a task, such as viewing an advertisement, can be used in the cryptocurrency mining process. So it seems to be an extremely convoluted way of checking that people are really watching your adverts. Oh, man. I don't know about that. Like, if they could find a way of monetizing the skip ad button, my reflexes have got fantastic for that. <laughs> it would be quite a good way to check whether the adverts are working in the way that you think that they're going to be working. But why it needs to generate money, I don't know. Well, it generates money so that it can go to the user. So I think it's a way of paying people to do like small internet tasks like you know, Amazon Mechanical Turk style things. Oh, I see. Um, except via this very convoluted trapping that they keep talking about fMRI machines, which baffles me because fMRI machines cost like a million euros and have to be kept in magnetically shielded rooms and need physicists to set them up and operate them. I can't imagine any use case where it would make sense economically to use an fMRI machine to make sure that someone was watching your 30-second Instagram ad. Yeah. <laughs> And it's not exactly a silver lining. Like, I'm never going to say to myself, oh, dear, I need an fMRI. At least I'll get 0.01 Bitcoin. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's so cyberpunk dystopian and yet so unnecessarily convoluted. <laughs> Somebody's going to do a remake of The Matrix. And that's what's actually been going on the entire time. It's just some people mining Oh, yes. Bitcoin. They're just lying in their pods watching Amazon ads endlessly. That's the future. For some people, that's what yeah. lockdown actually is. Well, fantastic. Steve, what news story have you brought along with you? Well, actually, I'm far more concerned at the moment to how I can work the phrase cyberpunk dystopian into a sentence sometime this week. That is is by far the coolest thing I have ever heard. Not not entirely sure I understand it, but uh, I'm, I'm going back a couple of years, actually, to an article in Current Biology with the title, the real title, 
Venomous frogs use heads as weapons. This was a, a study that was done after a uh, biologist working in the forests of Brazil was handling a particular kind of frog. And essentially, it stuck bony spines from its head into his hands. And for the next five hours, he suffered overwhelming pain uh, and eventually described it as the first venomous amphibian. So first of all, it, it is possibly the coolest and most insane piece of science I think I've ever read. But the reason that I'm actually talking about it is because it totally stole my thunder because uh, my master's thesis is all about one particular kind of salamander, which I was hoping to describe as the first ever venomous amphibian. And I was pipped to the post by some guy who just was unlucky enough to get stabbed in the hand by a venomous frog. Oh, no. <laughs> Because there's, there's a difference between venomous and poisonous, isn't there? A very important one, yes. The, the, way, that, uh, the way that I often say it is that um, if you eat something and you die, then it's poisonous. And if something bites you and you die, then it's venomous. So uh, poison is something which is ingested and venom is something which is injected using spines, spurs, fangs or, or a kind of knobbled spiky head in the case of this amphibian through the dermis and, and into the uh, into the bloodstream. So yes, lots and lots of amphibians known to be poisonous. In fact, the, the most poisonous creatures on the planet are amphibians. The, uh, the famous golden dart frog from Colombia said to have enough poison in its skin to kill 10 people and it's the size of the end of my finger. But having one that is, is venomous, that was a, a whole new thing. And I was so hoping to be able to claim that for myself, but I was hip to the post by a, by a mere four years. There's two things we have to dig into here, because the first one is I've, I've come across this frog by a strange writ. Was Our listeners will know I run the Ugly Animal Preservation Society, and as we tour, we get people to elect their own ugly animal mascot. And Glasgow elected the pig-nosed purple frog as their, as their mascot. I think had our gig there happened at a time that we knew of the existence of a frog that can headbutt you to death, <laughs> Glasgow would definitely have gone a very, very different route. A Glasgow kiss from a frog. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> this little Ouija in um, Columbia. Is poisonous versus venomous the difference between a defensive system and an attack system, or is it all defense based? No, not necessarily, because there are uh, this venom from the from the frog is without question being used as a defense. It's not being used in any way to to overcome prey. There's plenty of animals that use their venom in defense. I, I mean, for example, you know, spitting cobras that uh, that eject their venom through their fangs towards the eyes of an attacker. It, it is venom, but being used solely for for defense. Poisons, though, poisons, yes, they are, they are being used as a way of repelling other animals, as a way, uh, uh, and, and quite often they're backed up with a prismatic coloration with, you know, very, very bright, lurid colours that let other animals know that they're going to be at least bad to eat or possibly fatal to eat. So the, the golden dart frog that I was talking about earlier on is, is bright yellow in colours. Some of the other uh, dart frogs look like glorious Fabergé eggs. They have the most extraordinary bright, bright jeweled colours, but that, you know, tells other animals to leave them well alone. Well, just before we move on from this news story, as this head-butting frog has stolen the limelight, what was the salamander? Tell us what the solar species was. So the, the, the salamander is the, uh, the Iberian sharp-ribbed newt, which is an absolutely astounding animal, which, if it is attacked by something else, will drive its own sharpened ribs out through its body, forming this, this pointed spiky defence which presumably would get into the, the mouth of any attacker. And that defence has been known for, for 
quite some time. There have been numerous studies done about it, but I had apocryphal evidence that um, that it, it was it was using something else, that it wasn't just the mechanical advantage of having these spiky ribs uh, as a defense. So my hypothesis was that it was going to be using some kind of venom. So I went through all of these various tests to try and figure out if it was coating its ribs in a venom to, to increase the efficacy of its defense, and it turned out it does. Wow. Does it damage the salamander? Is this like a one-time strategy that it then has to go away and heal from? Or? Well, so that that's the interesting bit, and that is very much going to lead me on to, to my my level-up subject. <laughs> well, actually, maybe in that case, this is a good time. First of all, we do have a new story also from Rachel before we get into uh, the incredible capabilities of the amphibians. Rachel, what's your new story? Mine is about a chap called Bertolt Mayer, who is a DJ, producer and professor of organisational psychology at Technische Universität Chemnitz in Germany. That's quite a CV. Am I, am I pronouncing this correctly, Kate? Sort of. Technische Universität. Universität, thank you. He was born without his left forearm and he has a prosthetic which is amazingly lifelike and has a full 360 degree rotation. And why not when you have a prosthetic hand? But he appeared on BBC Radio 5 Live in February, having hacked his prosthetic and connected it to his synth. And he can create music using this. There are two electrodes on the surface of the skin. They pick up signals from the muscle that would have been responsible for flexing the wrist of the hand that isn't there. And they allow him to change the pitch of a piece of music that he's previously created. So it's not quite turning a thought into music. The BBC headlined this as the man who can create music with his mind. And it's not quite that, but we're sort of only a few steps away, perhaps, from being able to create original music using this thought technology. I love the fact that the BBC hype up these headlines, the man who can make music with his mind. I can make music with my mind. It's just my incredibly untrained larynx and voice box that make it horribly (laughs) unlistenable. I can't after three or four... You know, I don't know how long lockdown has been now, but if any tune pops into my head, it is just Baby Shark. That is what's been imprinted oh, at this point. Oh, no. That's the worst. But it's only pitch currently. He can think things higher or lower. At the moment, he can he can adjust the pitch of a tune he's already created using muscles which operate the wrist of the hand that isn't there. Yeah. He's written some really interesting papers on how disabled people are perceived and how use of bionic technology changes that. So disabled people are often perceived as unable to do things, less competent than able-bodied people. And incorporating bionic technology actually changes that quite a lot. People start thinking of them as apparently still not as able as able-bodied people, but they don't think of them with quite so much pity. And obviously those things have effects on self-esteem and mental health. Yeah. Well, we've, we've heard about this before, but in our podcast of actually how a lot of the early adopters for so much of technology and how many of the pioneers are people that would have, say, different physicalities to the people who are born like 100% healthy, that people who have been forced to adapt in some ways have done in some remarkable, remarkable ways. So that's what's happening in science right this very minute. But we want to get into the far future. What do our scientists want the human body to be able to do? And why don't we start with you, Steve, because we were already leading into why... I think amphibians are your kind of vertebrate heroes, shall we say. Yes. So as Kate was alluding to earlier on, the, uh, this salamander whose, whose life I have been completely buried in for the last four or five years has extraordinary powers of regeneration. 
So after it has squeezed its body, forced its own sharpened ribs out through the sides of its body, causing causing damage. I mean, when we've with my with my colleagues, Steve Trim and Dr. Carol Trim at Canterbury Christchurch University, when we've studied the fluids that we find on the end of the ribs, there's there's blood there. There's evidence that you know it is causing real wounds to the body of the salamander. But you come back an hour or so after it's gone through this this whole process and it's it's completely healed. And that is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to amphibians and regeneration and healing. So what I want to suggest is that we take on the ability of amphibians, particularly of salamanders, to regrow their limbs and even parts of their organs uh, when they get damaged. This is a fantastic suggestion. Yes, and we, we, we definitely, we're big fans of the axolotl on this podcast. It's one of those things that's come up a few times, but we want to get into the specifics. If people are actually trying to look at this, can you tell us, do we have any inkling as to why the salamanders in particular, maybe the amphibians in general, have these techniques and what they might be? This is way beyond the reach of my own studies and way out of my area of expertise, but it's a really hot topic for science at the moment for very obvious reasons. If another vertebrate has the ability to regrow not just you know parts of limbs, digits or, or, or tails, but parts of organs, then surely that has possible implications for us and for medicine. So there are billions and billions of dollars going into the study of how this happens and whether it might be something that we could use ourselves. The kind of the hot words that crop up over and over again are, are macrophages, which are particular special immune cells that are involved in the process, pluripotent stem cells, and tissue-specific stem cells, all of which appear to have a factor in this regeneration. And I should say, it's it's not just it's not just newts and salamanders that have it. So there are there are plenty of other uh, vertebrates. Zebrafish, for example, can regenerate parts of their brains if they lose it, parts of their hearts if they lose it. And there are invertebrates like, for example, planarian worms that can lose almost all of their body, uh, including parts of their heads, and still completely regenerate. Um, then there are arthropods, which will, will molt and regenerate lost limbs, re regenerate parts of their body. So actually, in the natural world, a regeneration far, far greater than we are capable of is, is quite common. When they regenerate, do they regenerate brand new parts? Is it like... Um, when you're getting old and wrinkly, you can sort of cut your head off and then grow a new body that's young and firm and wrinkle-free again? Or do you regrow at the same sort of biological age that you that the salamander previously was? I, I don't think anyone's talking at the moment about regrowing an entire new body. If you were a planarian worm. But yeah, a planarian, planarian worm, so that's Absolutely, yes. And I, I didn't realise it was quite this much, but actually planarian worms can regenerate if they're left with uh, one three hundredth of their original body length, they can still uh, completely regenerate. There are uh, uh, tales of, of sponges being fed through through sieves and, and regenerating at the uh, at the end of it. I mean, we, we as humans, we do have a, a limited ability to, to regenerate ourselves. So, for example, I, uh, I was I was bitten. This is, a, this is a great story. I was bitten by a piranha on the end of my finger, black piranha, took off the end of my finger about about six or seven years ago, and it grew back. And now I'm looking at it and, you know, it was gone. The top of my finger was completely gone. And now I've just got this pathetic little white bit at the end of my fingertip. And nobody even believed me. I have to show them the film to convince them <laughs> that I did actually lose my fingertips with piranha. We have a limited ability to regenerate, but it, it's nothing 
compared to that of the Uridella, the group that comprises the, the newts and the salamanders. I love that because I'm just imagining in my head that piranha's waiting for seconds now that it knows it's come back, you know. It has a taste for human flesh. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming that we get this ability and we manage to get it into the entire population, I'm very worried about our ability to actually take care of ourselves if we can just know that we regrow anything. We might be far greater risk takers, but we might also be somewhat prone to really damaging each other or ourselves on the basis that it's fine, we'll just grow back that arm that I've just shoved into a meat grinder because, hey, why not? I got bored. Seriously, Rachel, do you know what I do for a living? You, you are talking to completely <laughs> the wrong person. I have literally swum with great white sharks outside of the cage for, for my job. For fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's the whole reason for this, is it actually? This is basically, this is going to be research funded by the BBC Natural History Unit because if they lose one of you, they want to be able to, to regrow you from that fingertip which is left over. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Actually, c- completely seriously, I, I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought about the, uh, the, the psychological effects if all of a sudden we did, did consider it possible to, to regrow every single thing that we, that we lost. Actually, I, I'm convinced. It's a terrible idea. I take it all back. Well, well, no, actually, okay, let's, let's, let's dig a bit deeper because I want to go back to the salamander that you were talking about originally because that might hold part of the answer because we could well have regeneration but still retain pain. So do we know, does this salamander, when it's stabbing its ribs and coating them in this kind of, I don't know, spice rub of poisons? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's evidence of, uh, you know, the... The, the number one chemical that we're always looking for, uh, cortisol. There is there is evidence of cortisol. There there is real evidence that the animal is is suffering pain when it goes through this uh, this this response, this anti predator response. So yeah, there's there's no suggestion that there is any dampening of the the pain reflex. So yeah, I, I guess that um, you're still going to be concerned. Maybe you can regrow a new face, but if it hurts an awful lot to have the old one smashed off, you'd probably still be quite careful about not doing it, wouldn't you? What I'm hearing is that the combination of anaesthetics and regeneration are what we need. Drugs and regeneration, maybe. Yeah. Wow. I have another question, which is, (laughs) do you have any idea of why the venom is projected by the ribs? Because why not spit the venom or do something which doesn't involve your body having to kind of like move outside of its natural restrictions? That doesn't make much Mm. sense to me. I, I, I can totally see that. So, so this is just my idea. This is just how, why I think it happens. In an awful lot of other newts and salamanders that are related to this particular creature, their response to a predator is to hunch up their back and create this, this shape which appears larger, therefore more intimidating, possibly more difficult to swallow. It's a, it's a quite quite common predator defense to make yourself appear to be bigger than you actually are. There's, there's plenty of herpetofauna that will just pure and simple take a massive breath of air and inflate their bodies and appear to be much bigger than they really are because then they're, they're more intimidating and less likely for a, for a predator to eat them. And actually that, that shape that they create by tensing their body into that hunch position is exactly the shape that, that my salamander takes on in order to push its ribs out through its body. I see it as being a gradual step, one that has has evolved over, over deep time to become more effective. I mean, actually, 
if you created that inflated shape but didn't evert your ribs out through your body and a, a predator took a big bite, it would get down through the dermis and still get those ribs into its mouth. So I can see every tiny step that could have occurred in the evolution of this, this anti-predator defense, if that, makes, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's really quite sophisticated what it's got going on now. That is very off-putting, I'd say. Yeah, I would, I would say one of the questions, really for me, one of the big questions that I would ask if I was talking to any of the scientists that are doing work on, on these extraordinary pluripotent stem cells and how they might function us is why we don't have them already. Why is it that human beings don't have that? I mean, unless you're the wolverine, who I'm pretty sure isn't a real person. What? Why don't we have those powers already? You know, why haven't we evolved to have uh, those those kinds of stem cells? And although I haven't seen any hard science on it, what what I'm seeing over and over again is that having the kind of numerous regeneration cycles inside a a, a body is something which is very closely associated with aggressive cancers, and that it's possible that there is. There is going to be a trade-off there, and that if we did have the ability to, to regenerate limbs and regenerate parts of our, our body, it would come at a cost. So what I'm seeing over and again is that you know we have the ability to regenerate our livers, for example, if we're you know really heavy drinkers, but eventually further on down the line, that's that is quite likely to lead to liver diseases such as cancer. So to dig deeper into that, just because it, it would make sense as another angle of study for this kind of thing, do we know then? Do amphibians, if they were lucky enough to be out of the natural environment where they're not going to be having to deal with predators and stuff, A, do they get more cancers? And B, are they heavy drinkers? (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's drinking like a fish, not drinking like a frog. (laughs) (laughs) I see no evidence of of more cancers in amphibians, although, uh, you know, at the moment there are an extraordinary amount of pandemics that are, are raging through amphibian populations and they're probably more threatened than any other large group of, of vertebrates, particularly down to things like chytrid fungus. I see no evidence of them getting more cancers, but that that's not necessarily a definitive reason why we as human beings wouldn't. Mm. Okay. Well, Rachel, as the judge and the person who decides which of these things we put in, first of all, is this on the shortlist? It's absolutely on the shortlist. It's in my personal top 10 things that I think would be great to have is uh, regeneration, particularly because of the damage I did to my liver in my 20s. But I I think it would be wonderful to be able to regenerate. In the tragic case of having having lost a limb or had an organ fail, it would it would be wonderful. The the cancer issue is obviously a bit worrying. It's an interesting point that we don't have this, and presumably there is a good reason for that. But it's on the short list. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Fantastic. I quite like the idea of just having my external ribs as well, just just to hang stuff off. Like, I'm always losing my keys. Just shove them on. Be perfect. <laughs> can you beat this, kit? What is your pitch? Please impress Rachel as much as you can. All right. So mine maybe doesn't get us as huge a benefit in catastrophic circumstances. I think I think um, that means I Steve's. already win, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you can't see the victory lap, which is going on in Zoom right now. <laughs> but I think it's uh, so. It follows on from what Rachel was talking about earlier. How there's all these uh, senses and abilities which we could have in principle. All these. Um, different sort of information streams that our brain could process, like the ability to control music pitch with our minds that we just haven't developed. And there's one in particular that seems like it would be really easy to develop, which is the ability to see the polarization of light. So lots of animals have this. Nearly all invertebrates can see not only how strong, how much light is reflecting off a surface and what color that light is, but they can see which way the light wave is wiggling. So when light waves travel along, they oscillate, and they oscillate in a certain direction. So they could oscillate up and down, or they should, could oscillate side to side. And lots of animals, particularly uh, cuttlefish, bees, um, crickets, locusts, lots of animals can see which way the light is wiggling as it bounces off surfaces. Okay, okay, uh, but, which but, turns but why? What's, what's so good about seeing a wiggle? Well, so it turns out to be really useful, particularly for navigation. So if you could look at the sky on a clear day and you could see the direction of polarization, you would see the, the sky as a whole grid laid out telling you exactly where the sun was, even if it's below the horizon, even if it hasn't risen yet uh, or it's set. Uh, you would see this perfect grid kind of overlaid on the sky telling you basically like a, a compass map overlaid everywhere you go. Uh, and we know that bees and locusts and crickets rely on this for navigation. So the bee waggle dances that they use to communicate directions when they go back to the hive and do a little waggle dance to tell their colony members uh, which way the food is, they encode the directions in terms of this polarization information in the sky, because you can trick them by putting them in little experimental setups that have false polarization, and they'll get confused about which direction things are in. That's fantastic. So you have this like perfect navigation system at all times. Can, can I just can I just chip in and say I have Google Maps. So 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 <laughs> not 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 a massive issue. I I also thought do, do we not have as humans a, a limited ability to see polarized light ourselves? Yes, absolutely, which is why I'm picking this one as the ability that we should have because we're so close to having it already. So we can very slightly see the polarization of light. Uh, so the way that you test this is you go outside on a clear day, you turn 90 degrees from the sun. So you turn so that the sun is at one of your hands 
Or actually, if you're, if you're in Ireland, <laughs> definitely don't. But okay. You might have to wait some time for a clear day, but eventually it'll happen. And then you look at the sky and some people, I have actually never seen this. There's a huge amount of individual variation, but some people can see a little yellow bow tie shape. And the direction of the bow tie points at the direction of the polarization of light. It's called Haydinger's brush after this uh, 19th century um, mineralogist from Austria called Haydinger who discovered it for the first time. So if you pay very close attention, there is apparently a very faint yellow oriented glow that can tell you which way the, the light is polarized. Well, this is fantastic. We, we need you listeners. Can we do this empirically? Please tweet us at Level Up Human if you've tried this and you've managed to see this little bow tie. Yeah, I would love to know how many people can see this because I've, I've tried it. Also, uh, LCD screens are the other thing that should be able to work. So LCD screens work by manipulating the polarization of light. It has two layers of polarized filters, one of which you can flip the polarization with an electric current to reveal or conceal light. And so the light that comes out of LCD monitors is strongly polarized. So if you load like a blank white document on an LCD screen and then turn up the brightness and look at it, uh, some people can also see it there. So you might not have to wait for a clear day. And what do you then do once you've seen the bow tie and what is it telling you? What is the directionality of it? Isn't, isn't it to be able to, to navigate when, uh, as much as anything, bees and, and birds, to be able to navigate when you haven't got clear clear view of the sun? So if the, if the sun is obscured by, by clouds, by perceiving polarised light, you, you can still maintain course towards a, a source of food or towards a particular navigational direction using, using polarised light. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It's clearer on a clear blue sky, but it is retained to a large degree still if there's cloud. It's particularly useful underwater. So the animals that seem to be most sensitive to it are cuttlefish out of the animals that people have investigated. So a cuttlefish can detect if there's a one degree of difference between uh, if you if you shift the direction of the polarization of light by just one degree, a cuttlefish can detect it and respond to it. Because if you get particularly in deep water, it's very useful because at the surface of the water, you have lots of ripples and disturbance and sort of refraction of the light off various things. But as you get deeper, that kind of disturbance becomes less and less and you still retain the polarization of light. Uh, so lots of fairly deep water animals seem to rely on it as, a, as an indication of both, both for navigation, where, uh, where the sun might be, but also for signaling. So there's some evidence that cuttlefish can generate on their skins patterns that reflect certain polarizations of light so they can communicate, possibly even like sexually signal to one another. They can make attractive patterns out of polarized light on their skin. Yes, we, I, I've seen it. I've seen it. We, we did, um, we've done uh, work with a whole bunch of cephalopods, but particularly with cuttlefish. And if you stimulate certain sections of, of cuttlefish skin, even if it's been from an animal that's dead, you stimulate it with an electric current and you can see the iridophores and the chromatophores opening into tightening and the colour formations throbbing across their skin, which are used for a, a huge variety of, of different behaviours, whether it's driving away another male, attracting a female, the, the camouflage. That, that's extraordinary. The, the one that I had to ask you about is when it comes to polarisation of light and sight in marine creatures, everyone always talks about stomatopods, specifically uh, mantis shrimp, peacock, peacock mantis. They're supposed to have the most the most advanced sense of sight. They have a huge array of photoreceptors. They have, I can't remember how many, a couple of dozen different photoreceptors compared to our three. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, but so if they're seeing 
polarized light. Whereas a cuttlefish that might migrate and might need navigation, they mostly stay pretty close. They have a, a huge site fidelity, don't they? So what, what would they be using it for? So it can also help with things like breaking camouflage and seeing in foggy or obscure circumstances. Um, so there's some research into this uh, for computer vision as well. So for example, the self-driving cars, it might be one way that you can create images that clearly show what's out there, even on a foggy day. Um, so depending on the orientation of surfaces, they reflect light with different polarizations. So that's why um, that's how polarized sunglasses work. If you're looking at like a lake, some big horizontal surface that emits a huge amount of glare, but it emits that glare all with light that's polarized in the horizontal direction. So then sunglasses work as being like a little fence that only lets in vertically oriented light. So you could use that same principle to, to look around in like a foggy uh, situation and you would be able to see some of the sort of orientations of surfaces and the edges of objects that you might not be able to see through like brightness or color differences. Okay, so what I need to know, Kate, is how many photoreceptors do you think we should have? <laughs> well, so I don't think we need to change how many. We just need to change how they're organized. Okay. So the photoreceptors, so the, um, our eyes work by having these little chemicals inside them that react to light. They have a chemical reaction uh, when a photon of light hits them. And they're already intrinsically sensitive to the polarization of light because their the molecules are elongated. And so they're more likely to have this chemical reaction if light uh, hits them with an oscillation that sort of corresponds to the, the length of the molecule. But the problem in human eyes is that the photoreceptors are kind of randomly oriented in our eyes. So we don't get any systematic benefit from this. Whereas in insects and in compound eyes, the compound eyes are made up of all of these tiny little uh, tubes of. I'm sure you know the correct word for what's the what's the in what's the small element inside a compound eye, micro facets or something. Or matidium is, is that right or is that completely? That, that sounds wrong possible. Word. <laughs> so these little components that they're made up of within each of them, they have their photoreceptors all aligned in exactly the same direction, and that means that um, sort of on aggregate, the whole lens is sensitive to the direction that the light is oscillating. So we don't even need to change anything. It's just a minor organizational change. And what would our eyes look like if we did this? Would they, would they look different? Uh, probably not. I think the only thing you would need to change the organization of is the back of the retina, which is like at the very back of the eyeball. You've never seen it anyway. I don't think you'd mind if it changed. <laughs> but would this mean we were sort of hit with a lot of extra information Yes, if it suddenly happened while we were adults, we would probably find it extremely confusing. You'd probably want like a new generation of, of, of humans to have it so they could figure it out for I was wanting to dig into that bit because this might be a strange one because you say that the insects have it and maybe it's a feature of having a compound eye. What is our closest relative that has this capability? Like, Is this something we had and lost or has been evolved multiple times in different places? It seems to be something that nearly all animals have to some degree. So... As, as Steve said, humans can see the polarization of light to some degree. I found a paper that said that we have the uh, highest sensitivity to polarization of all vertebrates that have been tested. Oh, wow. Uh, but then in the discussion section, they pointed out that the only other vertebrate that had been tested at the time of writing, which I think was 2015, was the rainbow trout. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it believed to be slightly better than rainbow trout? Isn't it believed to be um, really strong? I, I always hear it uh, referred to whenever we're doing anything with birds of prey, that, that um, polarization of light is, is really important to them. 
Oh, interesting. Okay, I don't know. I hadn't come across. I, that. I, I wanted to ask something quite similar to what what, um, what Simon was saying there, because if there are a lot of animals which are, so to speak, old, as in you know they've been around for a long time, that that have this able to perce- ability to perceive polarization of light. So, for example, uh, Nautilus, you know, they've been around for hundreds of millions of years, and, and lots mm. of arthropods, which again have been around for a lot longer than than we have. If they have it. Why is it so undeveloped in us? Is there a trade-off? You would think that probably there is, although it could just be that it wasn't a useful enough function to be preserved, you know, because we we don't have such kind of complex foraging behavior as bees. It's maybe less critical for us to always be perfectly oriented. Maybe we just relative to a- invented a spear and at that point it became less important <laughs> to work out where all the berries were in the surrounding area. Yeah, I mean, it could be that the organization of our eyes was driven by the need to to be very good at um, sort of object recognition, motion detection, camouflage breaking, all of these kinds of things. And polarization sensitivity just didn't give us a large enough advantage because we don't live in, for example, underwater environments. Now, you see, you've talked yourself out of it now, Kate. I'm not putting this on the shortlist because it doesn't go far enough. If we're going to level up our eyes, I want multiple eyes, eyes in the backs of our heads, eyes that can see through walls we can we can go x-ray here we don't have to stop at slightly more polarized I'm, light I'm pitching vision. a feasible enhancement here and just a minor <laughs> tweak can we get to never be confused about which direction the train station is see that that's that's your problem yeah you 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 were, you were trying to go reasonable whereas i i went full insanity <laughs> ribs crashing out through body regenerating limbs <laughs> well hold your horses though steve because we have got more suggestions yet and i don't know whether i really want my ribs to suddenly protrude out of my body with the blood and the tissue that's in between that and the skin coming with it by the sounds of it so simon what else have we got well i've got two suggestions coming from twitter for us so charlotte mccurris has been noting that particularly maybe in the middle of the night she often needs a wee while being thirsty and this, of course, seems like a massive waste. So if we can find some kind of way of fixing that, how might we do that, people? I mean, some sort of plastic tubing fix that, right? <laughs> well, from... You could create a circulatory system outside. Oh my goodness, you're, you're turning yourself into a single human centipede. It's the most hideous idea in history. You're turning yourself into a Donald Trump fetish video. Like, oh, I do not want this. No way, man. Now, who here has drunk their own urine? No. Steve, you must have have been in an emergency situation (laughs) at some point in your life. You're you're mistaking me for Bear. I know know we we have many similarities. (laughs) You you don't quite go for the extreme survival so much as the put me in front of a massive hippo approach. Yeah, yeah. And we we stay in, you know, five-star hotels every single night. (laughs) So, okay, I get it, I get it. I understand now the difference. All right, so... um, Charlotte, I, d- I don't know whether she wants to be able to drink her own urine. I think she just wants to not have to <laughs> wee and then drink in the same five minutes. Why is it not possible to be more like a kangaroo it, rat? Yeah, it's, it's kidneys are the key here, isn't it? That's what we really need, is souped up kidneys, which can reabsorb the water for us, kind of in demand. Would that be right? I mean, there are lots of animals that don't drink, mm. aren't there? Especially in the desert. There's a sand gazelle that can sort of shrink its liver and other organs in order to preserve moisture. So maybe we just need to be more like a sand gazelle. We're, we're thinking too far here. I mean, all she really needs is a bedpan and a water bottle. 
But I cannot... Yeah, but we're trying to improve the human body, <laughs> not um, technological fixes to the failures of the human body. Or well, the okay. failures of Charlotte to organise her own room. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but, but actually, okay, let's, let's, be, let's be serious for one second. I'm aware of one place where this is a real issue, and this is our future, perhaps, which is space, where you have to be able to recycle your water incredibly, incredibly well. Now, they use filtration systems and things, so that is effectively external kidneys. If we could incorporate some of that into us. Uh, the question here is, Rachel, is that on the shortlist? Do you know what? It wasn't going to be, but you've just persuaded me. Bearing in mind that we need to be multi-planetary in order to survive because of my obsession with the fact that we've reached the edge of our Petri dish. We need to get onto (laughs) Mars or somewhere to have a hope of continuing with this silly species that we are. I think I am going to have it, actually. So what are we actually calling this, though? You you could call it um, uh, coprophagic, couldn't you? Because like, like, you know, rabbits who kind of eat their own eat their own poo in order to gain the nutrients a second time round, maybe, maybe that could be it. Be, can we, I mean, can that's we... like internal, like internal urophagia or exactly, something. You don't yes. want it to have to come out of your body. Could, so could we call it wee cycling? <laughs> oh, very nice. That's I what mean, I'm here that's, for. That's the episode title. If you need a pun at any point, Simon is your man. Wee cycling it is. <laughs> Beautiful. We have another suggestion from Sam, uh, Sam Humble. He's suggesting gecko hands. Ooh, okay. Wait, are they are they voluntary? Like, can you choose which things you stick yeah, to, or are yeah, they compulsory? You, you can. So hands? it happens with something called Van der Waals force, which is why if you look at each one of a, a gecko's toes under a, a scanning microscope, you can see what what looks like Velcro, and it it bonds to surfaces at a, a, a molecular level. But they can do completely, you can watch it happening. It, it, it's uh, completely manual, the removal and placing of each time. I'm doing this into the camera like people can actually see. <laughs> uh, like but yes, they, they, they peel their fingers on and peel them back on again. Um, and it can oh. enable them to, to walk up even a, a, sheet of, a sheet of glass and to hang on to the, to the ceiling. But yeah, Van der Waals force, it's uh, W-A-A-L-S is is the way that it works. And it would be awesome. I'm not so sure because surely the problem here is that Sam only wants it for your hands. So that means that you're not going to be able to... You'd have to drag yourself, your whole body up by your hands. You could have it on your feet too, surely. I'm absolutely not having this. And the reason for that is that I've had to drag my daughter out from under her bed three times this week. Can you imagine <laughs> yeah. if the ki- if kids, because as soon as you were like three, your baby humans would be climbing up the wall and hiding in a corner of the room like that character out of the It crowd that I've forgotten the name of. Yeah, so that's a homage to uh, The Exorcist Part 3. That would be like that hideous scene in Train Spotting. Wouldn't it? With a baby yeah, goes yeah. across the ceiling. I'm going to be thinking yes. about nothing else for the rest of the day. No, I'm with you. Ban it. Ban it. <laughs> okay. So that's not on, I'm afraid. That's not on. Well, in that case, we've got one final suggestion, because, of course, it's from me. Like, my job as one of our resident zoologists is I, every week, scour the natural world for kind of proof of concept in what I like to call splice of life, you know, what we'd be trying to steal genetically. And I've come across this creature this time. I'm going to send you a Twitter link because that's the only place I find a video of it. Um, Rachel, or or anybody, please describe this to our audience. I think Steve might know it because I think it's very much within your wheelhouse. I can see a lizard which is sort of inflating its head. Inflating its head? You don't like a frilled lizard. Not a frilled lizard. It looks silver. 
It's near Miss. Distressing. Yeah, it looks like a lizard made out of mercury that's about to pop. Oh, now I have to see this. It's called the Anolis Aquaticus. And effectively what it has in its head is a, is a sort of part of skin, this whole thing, and it has an inbuilt rebreather. So whenever it's diving, it can stay underneath the water for 16 minutes because it can pretty much, as it exhales, put that bubble of water back into this sort of uh, bubble wrap pop head and then use the muscles there to contract it and put it back into its lungs. So it can keep using that same lung full of breath again and again and again. So it's, it's very similar to what's used by the, uh, the, the water bell diving spines, although well, they, they don't have lungs, obviously they have, they have book lungs, but it's, it's the same bit of science that enables that, that bubble of air to remain intact and usable, isn't it? Yeah, so I suppose I'm just suggesting we stick one of these under our hairline and we're landed. Go diving as long as we want. How does it help to keep re-inhaling the same bubble of air, though? Wouldn't you just, wouldn't a better solution to be just have better lungs that can keep that same lung full of air but absorb more oxygen from it? How, how what do you gain by breathing it out and then breathing it back in again? There's a huge amount of wastage, isn't there? Because when we breathe back out again, it's not it's not just carbon dioxide. In fact, you know, there is a perfectly breathable amount of oxygen coming out uh, of our mouths. That's, that's how uh, rebreathers work in, in diving is by, you know, using a scrubber to get rid of a certain amount of the carbon dioxide. But there's plenty enough oxygen still recirculating. Uh, I think that this is a this is a goer. This is an absolute goer. I'm, I'm there. But I think the lizard is taking a lazy solution by not just getting better lungs. If it's just accepting the limitations of incomplete <laughs> that limits, oxygen that absorption. <laughs> is actually kind of movement. So like you partly need in breathing in and breathing out, unless you've got really cool lungs like a bird or something, which have got a lovely circular motion. Check out our last yeah. podcast, everyone who's listening. So is I, this in the list, Rachel? I don't understand what we would use this for. This is for diving, is it? Yeah. Yeah. For, for diving without cylinders, in diving and, tank. yeah. Oh, okay, diving without cylinders. I mean, that would be fun, sure. <laughs> that is clearly one that we have to have, I think. Yeah, love it. Also, maybe we wouldn't need to wear uh, masks in public if we could just take a breath of air in our house and then keep breathing the same air. None of us would be expelling sneeze particles onto each other. Very, very useful in flu season and pandemics. I'm going to call that rebreathing. So we've now got... Regeneration, recycling, and rebreathing on the shortlist. Yeah, so which is it, Rachel? So there's regenerating limbs and organs. There's recycling, which is going to be very handy when we move on to another planet. And rebreathing, which is very handy for where we are on this planet with our seasonal flus and our pandemic crises and so on. So, hmm. It's going to have to be recycling for when we move to Mars. So congratulations to Charlotte Mykura on Twitter. Commiseration, Steve. I'm sorry that I haven't been able to pick regeneration because robbed. it's robbed. I know. <laughs> it's obviously brilliant. Surely regeneration is also useful on Mars. There's not going to be many doctors and surgeons on Mars. If you lose a limb there, regenerating it would be very helpful. That's true. We could potentially combine the two and have. Uh... No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Recycling it is. Sorry, Steve. Well, congratulations, Charlotte. We'll be in touch to see how you plan to implement this to all of us. Um, and if you do end up using a tube, we don't want to see the video. <laughs> so uh, there's remains only one final thing to do. A huge thank you to our guests. Before we go, have you got anything to plug? Where can people find out anything else you're doing? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Kate Stores. Um, I don't have anything to plug. I'm just writing scientific papers, but you can follow me on Twitter. 
I'm doing lots of live homeschooling at the moment. So 9.30 every Wednesday morning on my YouTube and Facebook channels, I will be answering any of your wildlife Q&As. And I'm also for the next 10 weeks doing homeschooling with Children's BBC as well. So any questions you might have about biology, about the natural world or things that are going on in wildlife in your garden, send in your questions and I will do my very best to answer them. That's brilliant. I shall certainly be in touch about that. Also, if anybody wants to come along to stay in for Tau Day, which is a celebration of Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that's on the 25th of May. And if you're enjoying Level Up Human, you can support us on patreon.com forward slash level up human. And I've adapted my headphone horror story, The Mirror Trap, to do an online Zoom version next Friday. So if you fancy checking it out, get in touch. It's definitely the strangest thing I've ever made. So, that was Level Up Human. Thank you to our guests, Steve Bakshul, Kate Stores, and of course, Rachel Wheelie, our judge. I've been Simon Watt. Big thank you to the Physiological Society for helping support us. Thank you and good night. That was Level Up Human. Hosted by Simon Watt, produced by Rachel Wheelie, and supported by the Physiological Society. For more information, go to levelupyoumen.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.